As promised, two words from the cross with a sermonic theme. I'm Tom Baker, listening to Law and Gospel on this Good Friday. We are live in the studio. We just talked about how, in my opinion, I thirst is one of the greatest words from the cross because it signifies that Jesus had certainly fulfilled every portion of the promises of the Old Testament so that you and I are on our way to heaven. Two words from the cross, Luke twenty-three forty-two. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And John nineteen twenty-eight. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. At the cross, a man of violence was soon moved to ask, Remember me when you enter your kingdom. If anyone had suggested to him on the day before the crucifixion that he would pray to one so weak that he could hardly carry his own cross, he would have felt insulted. But now he asked to be remembered. After all, man was not created to be forgotten. The word of forgiveness is already at work. A thug is made dimly aware that in some sense, Jesus is one who will transcend this moment. We question the robber about this kingdom with, Tell us, O robber, where where do you see a sapphire throne? Where are the cherubim and heavenly hosts? Where is the crown, the scepter, and the people that you are calling him who hangs on the cross beside you, Lord. Do you see another crown than the thorns? Another scepter than the spikes that pierce his hands? Another purple than his blood? Another throne than his cross? We hear the response. Today. Not some days in the distant future, but today. You shall be with me in paradise. This word of forgiveness reaches into the countless tombs of our earth to offer life. We we don't have to wait for three days later. Easter sounds from the cross. Today you shall be with me. Who would want to be anywhere else? But the event continues and focuses on the last moments of Christ's life here on earth, as he was thirsty, received sour wine, spoke the words, It is finished, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Who would not thirst after such anguish? The crucifixion was enough to dry up any tongue. So Jesus cried, I thirst. This is much more than Napoleon at Waterloo saying, I need a drink. It is a word of fulfillment. It's prophesied in Psalm 22. Centuries before the one who would be pierced in hands and feet and have his tongue cleave to his jaws in thirst. The the word I thirst really reveals that from eternity God had a plan of redemption for you and for me. 
the, the words, I am thirsty, is a signpost of that redemption being fulfilled by an ordinary thing like real thirst. So that all of us in our hunger and thirst might be redeemed. This cry fulfilled the Father's will. And Jesus waited for hours until he was truly thirsty. The cup of suffering was there to drink. This was the Son of Man fulfilling the promise of the Old Testament. Indeed, all the cool springs which flowed from the rocky heights stopped in their courses, so to speak, plunged into the deep lamenting loudly that they were not permitted to quench the thirst of their Creator. And how about all those angelic hosts that Jesus could have called during that time in Gethsemane? They're ready at a moment's notice to fly to their Lord and provide Him with some rest, just as one did in the Garden of Gethsemane. But they're ordered to stand at attention and cover their faces with their wings. So what is he given? He is given sour wine. Jesus denies himself the pleasures of the streams of paradise, which were at his command, and instead takes a cup of vinegar to drink. Man had once eaten the forbidden fruit, and instantly died. The Son of Man will now drink and die. Some would suggest, well, Adam and Eve really didn't die, did they? Oh, they thought they did. Remember, they went and fled from God, and where did they hide? Right where God was, because He's everywhere. The death that they died was the death of separation from God Himself. And it was a death that God had promised would happen. Unbelievers are the walking dead. Because the difference between death and life, from God's point of view, spiritually, is not, are you breathing or are you not breathing? No, it's, do you have that kind of relationship with God that only can come about through faith in Jesus Christ? Scholars throughout the centuries have really questioned why Jesus died so quickly. It was not uncommon for somebody who was being crucified to last three or four days on the cross. Jesus died in six hours. Uh, A few years ago, there was a prestigious medical journal, JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association, still still going on, and it had an article written by two two physicians who supported or supposed that Jesus' premature death took place because of a massive heart attack after having been cruelly whipped, uh, tearing the flesh on his back. But the only problem is, if you've ever seen an execution in the electric chair, what do they do? They always shave the head. There's preparations in all forms of execution, and 
the crucifixion was certainly another one of those, they would whip a person. Why? In order that he might lose his strength early in the crucifixion. Why? Because the way you die being crucified wasn't from the poison of the nails that were in your wrists and feet. No, instead, you died by strangulation. You lost your breath. You were unable to lift yourself up to breathe. You became so weak that you suffocated. Self-suffocation. That that Jesus died as quickly as he did is really unusual. But armed with medical facts and a scientific mind, physicians have to figure out something about the body, even though Jesus probably had a, a perfect body, Not that having a perfect body was part of his sinlessness, but I'm sure he took care of his body. We don't have to speculate why Jesus died at the time he did. We know. He died at the moment he did because he chose to do so. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. And and the verbs there, he's the one doing the action. He's the one giving up the Spirit. It's not being taken from him. Put yourself in the place of that centurion. You you probably have been at a, a number of crucifixions. And what is the one thing that every criminal desires? To be put to death. For the suffering of the crucifixion was excruciating. It was just really bad. In fact, it became so bad that Constantine, the emperor in 313 A.D., banned it in honor of Jesus. Believe it or not, it still still was carried out by Jews in their killing of criminals. But the Romans stopped it. Jesus died at the moment he did because he chose to do so. Because now everything had been accomplished. And the last thing he was waiting for was to thirst. He had finished the work that his father had given him to do. He looked throughout all of the Old Testament Bible as he hung on that cross. And every prophecy had been fulfilled except for one. Psalm 22, verse 15. So he waits until thirst overcomes him, cries out, I thirst, takes a drink, and wills to die. Now the centurion standing there knew the significance of that premature death. He certainly had been around many a crucified one who had begged to die, but to no avail. Yet here was the one who freely chose to die at the moment He selected. Consequently, the centurion says, Truly this man is the Son of God, for only God has power over life and death. The Savior had looked around him back to Adam, through you and then forward to the last sinner yet to be born. 
he made sure that there was not one of you whose sins had not been fully paid. And only at that moment did he say, It is finished. The timing was exquisite. For in Israel on that Good Friday, it was the time of the evening sacrifice. The smoke of incense rose above the walls of the temple. This evening, however, the real sweet-smelling saber rises up from a hill outside the city called the Skull. In Hebrew, Golgotha in Latin, Calvary. Men had done their worst. We usually do. But in God's plan, all the equal signs are reversed. Suffering turns into your redemption. Because what Jesus did on the cross is not take away your sins, because you continue to sin. He summoned to himself the curse of the law. That is, that death, that separation from the Father, so that you no longer need to live under the law. Under the law? Aren't we supposed to live according to the law? Yes. It's one thing to live according to the law, but to live under the law, that means something quite different. And Romans 6 makes that so clear. You are no longer living under the law. You're living under the gospel. And what that means is, what is motivating you to do what you do? If it's the law in order that you look good in God's eyes or look good in the eyes of others, that is self-centered and selfish motivation. But it's not the law that motivates. It's the gospel, because once you understand that you are right with God through the death of Jesus Christ, there's no need to do any good works at all to get on God's good side. Yeah, let me say that again. There's no need to do any good works at all to get on God's good side. It's so sad that many sermons always end up with a salad or a French ending. A let us or may we. And they'll bring God in and say, now may we really get out there and start sharing the message of Jesus Christ with others. I'm not saying that it's wrong to say that. I'm just saying that why end the sermon on a law note? When what really moves a person to do is not information and a command, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus summoned the curse of the law to himself. He did not try to run away from it. In fact, in his voice, men could hear the sound of triumph and accomplishment. At last, it was done. In fact, he died as he had lived with a word of Scripture on his lips. Into thy hands, he said. Is there some other place than this? And if so, will someone please point it out? In his very death on this Good Friday, there is strength for you and for me. St. Paul, facing a martyr's fate, could say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against the day. Now, that day of judgment. For Paul committed his entire being to the Lord, 
Why is Paul not worried about the day of judgment? Isn't God going to look at works? Yes, he is. But the works that he regards as saving you are part of that robe of righteousness you receive from Jesus Christ himself. They, they cover your sin. And the things that you've done wrong, you receive the gift of the forgiveness of sins. So, this is how God is able to keep that which you have committed to him against that day of judgment. Stephen prayed as he was being stoned, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And in a few moments after his death was with the cross, I'm sorry, was with the thief on the cross who also was in paradise with Jesus. And you take a look down through history. John Huss, martyred at the stake by religious leaders, with a paper crown on his head and on his way to death, by fire raised his voice to heaven, saying, But I commit my soul into thy hands. There's no place of greater safety, of greater calm and peace, than these hands of God. And near Calvary, as that took place, God reaches through in his power and the veil in the temple separating the Holy of Holies from the people is torn in two from top to bottom. I can't tell you how many times my mind has changed about what that means. It just changed again recently. I I thought I had it. When I was younger, I used to think, well, if the veil tears which separated the people from the Holy of Holies, that means we are now able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And I would think about, like, going to communion. Now, going to communion is having the Holy of Holies enter into you. So I I had the equal signs reversed. And that was my first change in thinking, is it's not that we now are able to approach God, but God now approaches us. And where is the Holy of Holies now? Or let's put it this way. Where's the temple of the Holy Spirit? Yes. The Bible says God has made your body the temple of the Holy Spirit. So that was my first change in attitude, that the temple tears so that God now takes up residence in your body. He now comes to you, not that you go to him. I chose you, you have not chosen me. But further reading has changed my mind again. Where somebody made a very good case that the Holy of Holies was the place where you would go to find God. Where's the place now where you go to find God? I'll give you a hint. I'll change the question. Where's the person to whom you go to find God? You you don't go to Moses or David or Solomon or the disciples. You go straight to Jesus. And I dare say that when the temple tore, the, the Spirit now took up residence in Jesus. And what does Jesus himself say to his disciples? I'm sending you another comforter. 
the Holy Spirit. And we know that the three persons of the Trinity are so closely aligned and related. But, but that's pretty good. Because I don't want to send people to their own body to find God, but boy, to send them to Jesus. And, and where is Jesus? The same place he was throughout the entire Old Testament and New Testament. He's in the Word. He's in the sacrament. And, and we have something far better than, than anybody in the Old Testament had. They, they had ceremonial laws, none of which really saved them. They were all used by God as a reminder that they needed being saved. How would you like to be a part of the temple worship, and every time you sin, you had to do some kind of a sacrifice, maybe a cereal offering or an animal offering or, or something? Oh, would you be looking for the day of redemption? People who are still under the ceremonial laws of uh, the Sabbath has to be Saturday or tithing or any of those, it's so sad. Because they're free from the obligation of having to follow ceremonial laws in order to get right with God. They're already right with God. Yes, the, the presence of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit now marches forth from the Holy of Holies and really ends up in the hearts and souls of every believer in Jesus Christ. So, in, indeed, you're... Body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The fact is, it only is there through faith in Jesus, the God-man. You, you don't have to worry about the future. Because God has promises to take care of you in the future. And the promises that God has are going to be a sure in taking place in the future as they were in the past. This is the God who continued to stay on the cross for minute after minute for, what, 720 minutes? Six hours times 60? Or what am I saying? No. No, 360 minutes. That long. For you. He could have done earlier, but then... He would not have fulfilled it. But he wanted to fulfill it because of his great love for you. You know, you can rest assured that the house of God will be filled. It may not be filled with certain people, such as Ananias, Judas, or the unrepentant malefactor. So who's going to be filling the house of God? Well, it's going to be Adam and Eve, Moses, Abraham, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joseph and Mary, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Paul, the Roman centurion, Nicodemus, you, and even me. Because we deserve it. Because we earned it. Because we merited by our many good works. No, you can't even do a good work until you are fully saved. And that you were fully saved 
took place at the cross when Jesus completed the very last item that needed to be completed. And he said the words that ring true down through the ages. I thirst. Now it is finished. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday at this time on Worldwide KFUO. For a contribution to the program, make your check payable to Law & Gospel and mail it to Pastor Tom Baker, Post Office Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri 63132. You can call toll-free at 1-877-267-1962 or email lawandgospel at lawandgospel101.com. 